Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Dave McKechnie, standing in this week for Chris Dooley. Washington witnesses another piece of history today, Tuesday, as the Senate begins what will only be the third ever impeachment trial of a US president. Donald Trump is far from the scene of the drama at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, where this morning he made a bullish speech to business and political leaders in praise of the US economy, almost as though his political future was not being decided on the Senate floor some 7,000 kilometres away. Trump was impeached in the House of Representatives in December on two counts, abuse of power and obstruction of Congress, over his dealings with Ukraine last year. Although he is expected to be acquitted of the charges, this Senate trial could offer plenty of drama, as well as undermine the president in a crucial election year. Later on, I'll speak to Daniel McLaughlin in Kiev about the view there on proceedings in the US. But first to Washington, where Suzanne Lynch is preparing to report on days and possibly weeks of testimony on the Senate floor. Suzanne, for those who don't recall the impeachment trial of Bill Clinton in 1999, can you tell us what this Senate trial will look like? What are those who tune in on television likely to see? Yes, well, today on Tuesday, this trial is beginning. And um, what we will see is that the 100 members of the US Senate will all be in situ. They have been told that they need to be there every day for this trial, uh, that they're not allowed to speak, that they're not allowed to text or use their phone. So that will be in itself a challenge, if you like. And it's very rarely where you see all the senators there at the same time in the Senate. Um, This follows Donald Trump's impeachment on the 18th of December. And as set out in the Constitution, once he's impeached, it then moves to the Senate for a trial. And during an unspecified uh, number of days, uh, the 100 members of the US Senate then decide essentially whether to remove Donald Trump from office, whether to convict him if you like, of impeachment. So it is not a legal trial, but it has a lot of the trappings of a legal trial where the senators are, if you like, jurors in this process. Okay, now overnight there was some significant news when uh, Republican Majority Leader Mitch McConnell laid out the rules for the impeachment uh, Mm. and Democrats were very unhappy with them. I think this is going to be the key focus in the opening days of this trial. Um, And again, you mentioned the Clinton impeachment and it's useful to make a comparison to the Clinton impeachment trial, which was nearly exactly... 21 years ago. And during that trial, um, at the beginning of the trial, the 100 senators at the time met, they had a bipartisan meeting and they all agreed on the rules of the trial, but they voted in favour of them from 100 100 to to zero. And this time it's very different. There has been constant rancour and division over how this trial should proceed. Now, of course, there are very few precedents for this. This is only the third impeachment trial uh, in, in history. Um, the Clinton trial is obviously the most recent. So Mitch McConnell has said he's he's basing himself on the his plans on the uh, Clinton trial. Democrats have criticised him of being dishonest about this. Um, but what he's saying is that in the Clinton trial, uh, they, they started by setting out their opening arguments over a period of days. And then at a later point, they voted on whether to call witnesses. In this case, Democrats, Chuck Schumer, the top Democrat in the Senate, has argued that we need to have a vote to include witnesses at the beginning of the trial. He's worried that won't happen if they don't vote on it on Tuesday. Um, So just on the eve of the trial beginning, Mitch McConnell set out his resolution he's going to um, put to the floor at the opening today on Tuesday. Um, and he is he is setting out um, no vote on witnesses and also an extremely quick impeachment trial. He is saying, like the impeachment of Bill Clinton, um, the House impeachment manager, managers, they're essentially the prosecution, if you like, from the Democratic side. They will have 24 hours uh, to set out to present their case. And then 
lawyers for President Trump will have 24 hours to set out their case. But the crucial difference is that he has said that these 24 hours should be condensed over the two calendar days. In other words, 12 hours a day, which is extraordinary if you compare it again to a, a regular trial. It would usually be half that time. So what we seem to be um, moving towards is a trial that will start at 1 p.m. every day and logically will go on to about 1 a.m. Uh, the following morning. Um, now, we expect a huge uh, debate about this when the trial opens on Tuesday. Uh, Democrats have called it essentially a cover-up, saying, you know, this is not due process. This is rushing through the process. Most Americans will be in bed when most of this activity is happening um, and you're trying to push this under the carpet. Um, but it does seem that Mitch McConnell, 53 Republicans um, are in the Senate, so they have a, a majority, not a huge majority, but a majority. And it does seem that on this vote, the first vote today, on Tuesday, he does have the support of most of his party. He would not be bringing this resolution to the floor if he didn't. He's a very experienced parliamentarian and has been, you know, having closed doors negotiation with his team for the last few days. So we expect a big um, clash, if you like, about that issue of rules, how long it's going to take, what's the procedure when the Senate trial opens. And essentially, the Democrats, if they lose that vote on the procedure, have nowhere else to turn. Is that correct? <clears throat> yeah. I mean, what they will be hoping when the uh, trial opens, it, it, it's slightly unclear still, but uh, Democrats will have a chance to make some amendments. Um, and this could delay the process uh, for quite a bit. There are a possibility that some Republicans might uh, vote with the Democrats on this. But no, it looks like Mitch McConnell will be able to push this through. Um, now, whether some members of his own party essentially uh, will say, look, we need a break, you know, we're, we're going to have to stop early some evening. It does seem very difficult to know how these people are literally going to sit there for 12 hours and um, when under the Constitution they are obliged to be there all the time. And so maybe some members with his own party, for example, people are talking here about elderly members of the Senate. You know, are they really going to sit there for 12 hours without moving and talking? So um, I think a lot still has to be worked out. So I think the first 24 hours, if you like, of this trial will tell us a lot about how we go forward. But a lot of that detail is still up in the air. Now, since Trump was impeached last month, new information has emerged uh, from a Ukrainian-American associate of Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, who led the pressure campaign in Ukraine. Uh, and that associate, Lev Parnas, has said some very damaging things about the president in recent days. Can you tell, mm. us, can you tell us a little more about that? And is that information yeah. likely to feature in this trial? Yeah, it's been interesting. And this gets that this returns to um, Nancy Pelosi's argument, people may remember. She delayed transmitting the articles of impeachment. He was, Donald Trump was impeached on December the 18th. And it was another month before she transferred those articles to the Senate. You know, the expectation w was that she would do that straight away. The argument now is that this was a perhaps a good move because it allowed space for more incriminating information to come out. So Lev Parnas is um, one of two associates of Rudy Giuliani, American, but has a lot of uh, links in Ukraine, who's essentially acting as Giuliani's man on the ground in Ukraine. He was um, arrested earlier this year and is awaiting trial essentially in America. Um, about campaign financing rules and foreign interference in the election. But in the last 10 days or so, he's been doing a lot of media interviews and he's, you know, it's been pretty damning. He's, at the same time as he's been doing these interviews, the House Democrats who were investigating Donald Trump's impeachment in the first stage of this process released fresh documents related to Parnas. They were held up because of his, the criminal case against him. And together, these documents and Parnas's own comments 
have, you know, put more meat in the bones of this whole Ukraine issue. Name, and, and they include documents, they include text messages between him and the former prosecutor in Ukraine. They include, you know, handwritten notes from a hotel in Vienna. And they point again to um, a pressure campaign by um, particularly Giuliani on the instruction of Trump, Parnas says, uh, to pressure Ukraine to open an investigation into the Bidens. Um, and secondly, I think, which is perhaps more incriminating, he has got quite um, unsettling, I suppose, information about an effort, he says, to eff effectively survey, uh, spy on, watch Marie Jovanovic. She's the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. Uh, she was in situ in Kiev, you know, doing her job as a top diplomat until about May or June. And then Donald Trump and Mike Pompeo essentially fired her, brought her back to, uh, she would have called to Washington. But Parnas seems, in, in a lot of this communication that's now been released, a, a really sinister, to be quite honest, um, campaign of surveillance against this woman. Um, now, Donald Trump, of course, from the, and, and, and to get back to your original question, will this feature in the trial? It probably will. But of course, um, the Trump team have a very strong argument in that they are saying, how reliable is this witness? He's looking to cut a deal with prosecutors. You know, he it's questionable his motivations. You know, he he really doesn't have any proof. He says he spoke to Donald Trump, that he met Donald Trump, but he, there doesn't seem to be at this stage any further proof than that. So I think it will feature and it may remind uh, the public uh, and in a different kind of way of what Donald Trump was doing in Ukraine, allegedly. Uh, but in terms of swaying any Republican hearts, I think they can, you know, argue that he is an, un an unreliable witness, essentially. Trump has appointed a high-powered legal team, um, including uh, the independent counsel in the Clinton impeachment, Ken Starr, and also mm. well-known well lawyer, Alan Dershowitz, um, mm. who helped defend O.J. Simpson. Are we likely to see these uh, figures actively <coughs> participating in the trial? Yeah, I think the, the appointment of those two figures, um, you know, does bring a bit of showbiz, a bit of razzmatazz to the proceedings. And as we all know, Donald Trump does value the medium of TV, you know, he does like someone who performs well in front of the cameras. Um, and also to mention his personal lawyer, Jay Sekulow, uh, is very comfortable in front of the cameras too. He hosts a radio program. He is a, he's a quite polished media performer. Um, so I think there is a lot of the Trump stamp on, on those he picked for, for the trial. But of course, Kenneth Starr, I mean, in one way, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense for Donald Trump. Don, Kenneth Starr, of course, during the Clinton impeachment, you know, argued persuasively um, in his role as independent counsel, that essentially um, Bill Clinton should be removed from office over his over the Monica Lewinsky affair. Um, so he's now going to go into the Senate and argue, you know, the op that that Donald Trump should not be removed from office. So it, you know, he's he's on the other side. So it will be interesting to see what legal arguments he makes. Um, it is unclear how far they they will participate. What we seem to um, believe is that in you know the White House counsel. Uh, and Jay Sekulow may take the lead on a lot of these oral arguments. Um, but we do expect particularly um, Derrick and Starr will make some kind of interventions at some point over the few days. Um, and there are other people on the team as well. I mean, the, the brief that was signed by the White House, the 110-page memo, kind of setting out their arguments, signed by 12 12 lawyers, you know, half of those are White House, half of those are Donald Trump's personal lawyers. So, you know, they've been preparing this. The White House have said that. They've, they've known this is coming for a long time once the impeachment inquiry started. Uh, so I think they will be very well prepared when uh, they get their opportunity to set out their arguments. And looking at that brief that was released, um, what, what light does, does it shed on, on how they'll handle a defence? 
Yeah, like a lot of it was a repetition from what, you know, what we've heard before. But I think really the key point seems to be that, um, well, uh, in the first instance, they they engage with the two articles of impeachment and they say that both of these uh, are, are flimsy um, prosecutions. Like they say uh, that abuse of power um, is not an impeachable offence. And they say that obstruction of Congress, um, they... they you know, go against that and say they he asserts his rights of and privileges of the executive branch as as the head of as the president, um, you know, based on advice from his Department of Justice, and this will be uh, fly in the face of the whole idea of separation of powers if the president has not got the right to exert you know executive privilege and not give documents if he doesn't want it. That they argue that's his right under the Constitution under the separation of powers, um, and then I suppose more generally, I think their point would be, look. Donald Trump may have have uh, you know this is the issue. We the phone call is there. We we've we, there's a transcript of the phone call. There's a recording of the phone call between Donald Trump and the Ukrainian president last July. But they're saying right, he may have asked for um for this investigation. But a his motivations were purely uh, for the good of the country, and he was suspicious about corruption in Ukraine. But b that even if he did this, this is not an impeachable offence. That um, and we've seen Darius in the last few days saying, uh, "Well, you need a crime. That's going to be a big issue. Does do you need a crime to impeach a president?" Technically, they're saying this is not a criminal offence, but technically, in the impeachment clause in the Constitution, no, it's a different issue. It doesn't have to show criminal. It's it's about high crimes, misdemeanors, those kind of issues that are not necessarily a crime. So um, they're the kind of legal arguments I think we'll see the White House side make in the next few days. Just looking at the, looking at the Democrats' strategy, um, obviously they will be aware that that, that they are unlikely to get a conviction here. Um, so what will they be trying to achieve? They have an eye, of, of course, on on the presidential race as well, and 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 public um, perceptions of the president at the end of this process. Yeah, I mean the it, it's very interesting the timing. Unlike other impeachment, well, unlike the Clinton impeachment and even Nixon, even though it did never reached uh, the impeachment vote, um, they were in their second term as president. This impeachment is taking place just 10 months or so before a presidential election. So I think it's a really significant um, aspect of this process. Um, Democrats, I think, are worried because there are four Democratic senators uh, who really want to be in Iowa campaigning. It's now just a few weeks from the first caucus, the Iowa caucus on February 3rd. And instead, they are being obliged to stay in Washington. And as I said, not speak, not leave their seats uh, for the duration of this trial. Um, they're Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Amy Klobuchar and Michael Bennett. Um, so, yeah, it, it could really uh, be an advantage for other candidates in the Democratic race, like Joe Biden and like Pete Buttigieg, who's also a frontrunner. They will be spending the next few weeks in Iowa and New Hampshire trying to get those uh, final votes ahead of those key uh, caucuses and primaries. But of course, Joe Biden may be slightly worried, too, after all. Trump's alleged attempts to uh, ensure that the Ukrainians investigated Joe Biden and his son Hunter, who served on the board of a Ukrainian gas company while his father was vice president, is at the centre of this impeachment inquiry. So one issue for Democrats is if they really and if some Republicans break and say we want witnesses at this trial, Republicans are saying, well, then maybe we need Joe Biden. Maybe we need Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son. So um, I think Joe Biden's camp are kind of looking on this from afar and are hoping this problem will effectively go away. He's emerged relatively unscathed from this controversy so far. The public hasn't really seemed to, to blame him 
for this kind of cronyism he's been accused of, this this the optics of his son getting this big job in Ukraine while his father was in power. Um, but that, I think, is a worry for Joe Biden over the next few weeks because it will feature in this trial when we hear some of the details on the Senate floor. Finally, Suzanne, it's, it's hard to get a feel for it for, from this distance, but what is the political climate like in Washington right now? Is there a sense, uh, is there an expectation around the trial as a, as a, as a significant landmark or, or a sense that the outcome is a foregone yeah. conclusion? Uh, yeah, I think there's a, there's a, it, it, like a lot, a lot of thoughts here in America at the moment. Like it, it's a cliche, but it's true. It's it's an extremely hyper partisan uh, environment here, and um, I think that the expectation is that it's not going to move any minds either way. But I think what's going to be most significant is this: there's about four or five, even more Republican senators who could break with their party. Like so far, what's been remarkable about Donald Trump is that he's kept his own party in check and that there's been very few um, Republicans who have stepped out of line and they've all backed um, Donald Trump essentially so far. And it comes down to their constituencies. Some senators who are in kind of middle ground constituencies where Trump is not that popular will be coming under pressure locally, you know, to to have a proper trial. Um, So there are a few... people to watch here, Susan Collins of Maine, Mitt Romney from Utah. He was just elected um, in the 2018 midterm elections. And at the time, he wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post where he really suggested he was kind of going to become the new John McCain and take on Donald Trump. He's been relatively quiet so far, but look, I think he's worth watching very much over the next few days. You know, he could make a very strong intervention where he suggests that they need to hear witnesses because the Democrats are quite rightly saying, well, this is not a proper trial if we don't have any witnesses and if it's been rushed through. So um, there could be fireworks yet. It may not be. Look, Donald Trump is more than definitely going to be acquitted, but there could be some bumps on the way. And um, if we see some Republicans taking on Donald Trump, questioning Mitch McConnell over the format of this trial, um, well, then I think that could you know, damage Donald Trump in the public mind among some moderate Republicans and definitely further among Democrats. Suzanne Lynch in Washington. Uh, we'll follow your reports on irishtimes.com. Thanks for joining us. Next to Kiev, where President Volodymyr Zelensky, <coughs> next to Kiev, where President Volodymyr Zelensky, a former comedian who was swept into office on a wave of popular support last year, has found himself an unwitting star of Washington's impeachment drama. A phone call between Donald Trump and Zelensky last July in which the US president asked for an investigation of his political rival Joe Biden, became the trigger for the impeachment inquiry and thrust the relatively obscure Ukrainian administration into the spotlight. Dan McLaughlin joins me on the line from Kiev to look at the saga's impact on Zelensky's reputation and the crucial Ukraine-US relationship. Dan, what are Ukrainians saying about this affair and are they caught up in what's going on in Washington? Uh, I imagine if it was Ireland involved in this scandal, the whole country would be obsessed with it. Yeah, I mean, it is striking that um, even though it is being covered in the main newspapers and and the main um, news websites and, you know, obviously, you know, following journalists on Twitter and on Facebook and things, lots of people are talking about it and wondering what else is going to come out from the the impeachment proceedings when they really begin in earnest today. Um, Among the general populace, I would say there isn't a huge amount of interest. it feels like something that's quite distant to them. It feels like something that's quite far removed from their daily concerns. Um, we should remember that Ukraine is is in its sixth year of an undeclared war with Russia. Um, the economy's not healthy. Um, 
There are lots of issues around uh, reforms that the Zelensky administration are looking to push through that are of more pressing concern, really, for Ukrainians on a daily basis. They're the things that they're looking at, uh, which could have an effect on their immediate daily lives. Um, and they feel somewhat like, uh, as I suppose they are, they feel like distant observers of this strange uh, political theatre that's been going on uh, between Zelensky and Trump to some extent, but mostly um, within the American domestic political scene. Now, the scandal uh, has been a baptism of fire for Zelensky, uh, and the summary of last uh, July's phone call released by the White House wasn't exactly flattering. Uh, it did make him appear particularly obsequious. Uh, Zelensky has presumably been keeping his head down uh, on this issue, um, but what impact has it had on his popularity and reputation, if any? I don't think it's had a huge impact on his popularity here. Certainly looking at um, the regular surveys that people take of, of, of top politicians' ratings, Zelensky is still way out ahead of everyone else. Um, and certainly when you look back a few months, um, even back in the sort of late summer, early autumn, when this um, the, the transcript, transcript of the July conversation was released, there was no sign of an immediate effect on Zelensky's popularity at home. Um, his popularity has slipped a little bit in the last couple of months, but that is, again, speaking to analysts here, more to do with domestic concerns, uh, questions about how the peace process, such as it is, is going with Russia, um, whether Zelensky is capable of winning a a good peace, winning any peace at all with Russia and winning one that is also in Ukraine's interests. Um, but certainly when the transcript came out, again, among politicians, among people who watched the, um, the main political goings on here, um, it was embarrassing. He was very gushing towards Trump, agreeing with everything that he said, a full of fawning praise for Trump. It was really embarrassing. And perhaps the most um, potentially damaging thing for him was agreeing, as he said, not 100%, but 1,000% with Trump, that he was right that Germany and France, probably Ukraine's two most powerful European allies, weren't doing enough for Kiev in helping it stand up to Russian aggression. That was embarrassing, particularly because a few months later, um, Zelensky had to sit around the table with Putin and Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron to try and uh, move the peace process forward, to try and end the, the war in the East. But it seems like it hasn't had a long-term a long -term effect on um, relations with Paris and Berlin. There's also a key factor as well. We have to remember that Zelensky was a complete political novice when he was elected last year. Um, and Ukrainians take that into account, I think. They didn't choose him because they thought they were getting an expert in politics or diplomacy or economics. Um, they chose him because he was uh, completely removed from the political elite of the last 20 years or so. Um, and also they thought he has a basic kind of honesty and an energy that they need to move the country forward. So they're willing to give him a bit of leeway when um, he acts rather unprofessionally in certain circumstances. And it should be said, talking to analysts here as well, they say that he and his administration have tightened up considerably in terms of the comments they make, in terms of how um, how much they're willing to say on certain sensitive issues since that transcript, transcript was released. So it seems that Zelensky and his, his colleagues did feel a little bit burned by that and that they have um, learned some lessons from what was a pretty chastening early experience for him.
Now, of course, Zelensky was elected on a strong anti-corruption pr- platform. And I suppose one of the curiosities of this uh, of this affair is that it did sort of hint at at, at a sort of a, a, a corrupt underbelly uh, there, that there were quid quid pro quos to be had, to use that term. Um, has, has, has that sort of uh, struck home at all? Um, in a way that hasn't had a huge impact here. It's just made Ukrainians kind of nod their heads knowingly and say, well, and... You know, it's basically a fact that they know about Ukrainian political life and, you know, more broadly political life, I suppose, in the former Soviet bloc and uh, Eastern Europe. Um, And, you know, it's becoming clear to the American public and the international public that, um, yeah, things that that favours can be bought and sold here and that uh, influence is definitely up up for grabs at a certain price. Um, One really strange thing, I think, for Ukrainians when they are watching this somewhat askance is that characters who have been deeply discredited here in Ukraine, like a couple of former prosecutors, um, Yuri Lutsenko and Viktor Shokin, people who are very closely associated with the former president, Petro Poroshenko, um, they have, as I say, been discredited here as as very ineffective politicians with some dubious uh, contacts who made absolutely no um, progress on the reform agenda that, uh, that, that Ukrainians wanted. Um, they are being, they are now uh, connected with Rudy Giuliani. Rudy Giuliani is consulting them on matters regarding Ukraine. And so when Ukrainians see this, they kind of shrug their shoulders and think, well, if, if, if someone so close to Trump and with the influence of Giuliani is being taken in by these people or finds that it is in his interests or in his clients' interests to believe them and to push the conspiracy theories that they're pushing, there can't be that much behind this whole story. Um, what I mean by that is that they don't feel um, that this somehow reflects badly on on um, on Zelensky and the people around him because they they associate Lutsenko and Shokin and other people that Giuliani is now associating with, with the old regime, the people that Ukrainians wanted to get rid of when they chose Zelensky. So that hasn't reflected badly on him. If anything, seeing these people popping up in the news again reminds Ukrainians of why they chose another direction when they went for the Zelensky last year and subsequently chose uh, subsequently supported his new party in massive numbers in the, the parliamentary elections last year as well. Yeah, now Joe Biden's son Hunter was also caught up in this scandal, um, having served on the board of Ukrainian gas company Burisma while while Biden was vice president. Uh, Now, last week, the New York Times reported that uh, Russian military hackers had been trying to gain access to Burisma's servers in the same way that they accessed Democratic servers uh, before the 2016 US election. Is there a sense that this affair kind of has compromised Ukraine in some way as it, as, it, as it seeks to build better ties with Russia? I think Ukrainians are very, um, they're certainly very wary of, of, of what impact this may have on connections with, as I say, uh, top European powers, connections with the states. And when they look towards Russia, you know, Ukrainians fully understand that this hybrid war, as it's being called with, with Russia over the last five, six years, is being conducted in, in all spheres. It's on the battlefield in eastern Ukraine, it's in cyberspace, it's through the economy, it's through politicians, it's through um, disinformation campaigns and propaganda. So certainly um, the Ukrainian security services are well aware that they need to watch what Russia's doing 
in, um, through cyberspace. And when it comes to Burisma, obviously, this is an extremely sensitive subject. Um, and as you mentioned there, the Ukrainian security services are aware of what they think is a breach in, in the computer networks of Burisma. They've asked the FBI to help them investigate this. And of course, when we remember the allegations of, of Russian interference in the US election back in 2016, obviously uh, the Americans are, are interested, one would imagine, and certainly the Ukrainians are interested in making sure that Russia doesn't potentially gain any compromising material, anything that, that it could use in the forthcoming US election campaign from Ukraine. Because Ukraine, above all, and this is what people around Zelensky and political analysts here in Ukraine are saying now, the last thing that Ukraine needs is to be dragged deeper into this political battle in the United States when it comes to the impeachment proceedings. And then subsequently, as the um, election campaign, the election battle heats up in the United States, uh, moving towards the presidential election later in the year, Ukraine, above all, does not want to be caught in the middle again and be... Um, uh, seen as being either pro-Republican or pro-Democrat, because they know um, from recent painful experience how bad that, that can be for Ukraine's interests in the future. Can you remind us, Dan, where that peace process stands with Russia right now? Um, uh, presumably, uh, it, it, would, it, would, it would help Ukraine's interests to have a strong relationship and an active relationship with, with the US, uh, you know, to give it, give it a little bit of more leeway in those talks. Absolutely. Um, this has been... Uh, one of the really disconcerting things for Ukraine in this whole process is that it has shaken people's trust in um, in the U.S.-Ukraine alliance, which is absolutely vital um, in terms of financial support that Ukraine needs, diplomatic support on the international stage, and and um, some military support uh, that uh, Ukraine's getting from the U.S. in terms of um, some equipment that uh, Ukraine's receiving and also training from U.S. soldiers that Ukrainian servicemen are receiving. So in all those areas, the, the, the U.S.-Ukraine relationship is vital to Kiev. Um, and really on, on both sides of the Atlantic, in Kiev and in Washington, um, people are keen to, 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 to make the point that even though Trump has um, been, I suppose, at best ambiguous or ambivalent in his attitude towards Ukraine, um, and he said numerous times that he's very keen on some kind of on forging uh, closer ties and, and, and better relations with Russia. And he's um, uh, expressed his 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 respect for Vladimir Putin on several occasions. In terms of practical support, there hasn't been um, any significant decrease in what Ukraine is receiving from the United States under Trump. So diplomats and people in the Defense Department say that, okay, you might hear one thing from Trump, he might send very mixed messages on how he feels about Russia and how he feels about Ukraine, but on the day-to-day -day practical level, the support has, has continued to come through from the United States to Ukraine. Um, and certainly Ukraine doesn't want to do anything to risk to risk that as we move forward very, very slowly with very, very tiny steps in this peace process. Um, I mean, if we remember just a few weeks ago, Zelensky had his first sit-down meeting with Putin in Paris. Uh, Macron and Merkel were there as well. And a few small steps were taken. 
Um, they agreed on another exchange of prisoners in the near future. They agreed on trying to withdraw forces from certain areas of the front line, having withdrawn forces from, from a few sectors in, the re in recent months. But in terms of a, uh, of a long-term, stable, um, concrete deal to ensure that there is no more conflict between Russia and Ukraine and that Ukraine reintegrates the parts of Lugansk and the Donetsk regions in, eastern, in, the, in the east of the country that are currently under uh, Russian-led separatist control, we're a very, very long way from, from reaching that kind of deal. And there are fundamental differences still between Kiev and Moscow as to how that can be achieved. So it's still, it remains absolutely essential for Ukraine to have American support in all those different spheres in its dealings with Russia. And so Ukraine will be watching very, um, with some trepidation, let's say, as these impeachment proceedings move forward, um, to see whether it will be dragged deeper into them and whether there will be any revelations which could potentially um, damage the relationship, shake the relationship, or um, undermine ties between Zelensky and Trump further. Daniel McLaughlin and Kiev, thank you for joining us. That's all we have time for today. Thanks to Suzanne Lynch and Dan McLaughlin and to producer Declan Conlon. Thank you for listening.